and we're live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. My name is Jacob, and today we're starting a new series. So this series is going to be on the Seminole Wars. So just what are the Seminole Wars exactly? So the Seminole Wars are the longest and most expensive Indian wars ever fought by the United States. So just as a, to give you an example, the Second Seminole War alone cost $35 million, which is more than the entire budget of the country for one of those years, and lasted about seven years as well. Now, adjusted for inflation, that $35 million translates into about one point, almost $1.3 billion, which is just insane. Uh, and it was fought over U.S. attempts to colonize Florida and to remove the Seminoles from their land. And now, as far as time period here, we're talking 1816 to 1858. So it would be about just a few years after the War of 1812 to just a couple of years before the Civil War, which is a huge length of time. I mean, if you think about kind of the the period we traditionally think of, when we think of like the, you know, the Indian Wars, like the wars, you know, further out west. We think, you know, like after the end of the Civil War, so 1865 to like 1900. So we're looking at just a couple of years over at that as well. So it's a long period of time. You know, plenty of people would have lived and died, you know, and have never seen an end to the Seminole Wars. You know, if you, you know, think of think about the life expectancy for a lot of people back then. So I'm going to go ahead and give a little bit of background here. So about 500 years ago, there were around 350,000 people living in Florida. Uh, Now, 200 years after the arrival of Spanish, virtually the entire native population of Florida was wiped out through disease, enslavement, and warfare. I mean, the Spanish did what the Spanish did for a lot of the part, the uh, particularly first couple hundred years of their empire, and they just butchered everyone. So now at this point, uh, they, they pretty much depopulated Florida. So at this point, the Seminole did not exist as a people. So uh, how it came about is that the decimation of the native population in Florida left the country open for settlement and conflicts with the English settlers drove disparate bands of southern Indians to Florida to seek refuge and distance the opportunities for hunting lands presence in the state as well. So interestingly enough, the term Seminole is actually a corruption of the Spanish word Cimarron which means uh, either wild people or runaway, depending on you know which scholar you ask. So throughout the 1700s, various groups of tribes, such as the Yamases, Okanese, and other tribes of the Lower Creek Confederation, and throughout this podcast, I probably will butcher some you know Native American names, so bear with me. Uh, so uh, these members of these different tribes slowly migrated down to Florida as it was virtually deserted with the exception of a small Spanish presence at St. Augustine. Uh, Spanish, or um, so Spanish Florida was kind of an after, after, afterthought for us. I can speak today. Uh, it was a bit of an afterthought for the Spanish authorities. I mean, if you wanted, I mean, the, the land there was very swampy. There wasn't a ton of like mineral wealth. So there, they never really established a whole bunch of towns or like a really large population in Florida. They didn't really encourage a lot of settlement there. I mean, if you were, if you wanted to get rich, like in the Spanish empire, you would have gone to the Caribbean, you know, if, like, you know, found a sugar plantation with a ton of slaves, or you would have gone down and, like, owned a silver mine in, like, Potosi in, in you know, Central or South America. So, uh, eventually, though, Seminole mean, uh, came to mean uh, any Indian living in Florida, uh, as far as the Europeans were concerned. But up until the Second Seminole War, the Seminole wouldn't have considered themselves, uh, like, a one people. They would have considered themselves separate tribes. They didn't have, like, a single identity yet. So now that would change though later on. So in 1763, the British took control of Florida after the French and Indian War. 
And uh, this greatly expanded the deerskin trade in Florida as a result, which grew to 100,000 skins per year. So owing to this trade, the Seminole became hunters by profession and subsistence farmers as well. So gradually, this led the Seminole to occupy more land in southern Florida as they moved to gain access to larger deer populations. They basically would go and hunt out an area, and then they would go and start occupying more land to hunt more and just you know keep pushing and pushing further out. So now at the same time as, as the Seminole are expanding their presence in Florida, there's also a lot of African Americans that are traveling to Spanish Florida as well. Uh, they're mostly doing it to escape slavery, of course. Uh, but when the British go ahead and take back over Spanish Florida, or, or rather take over Spanish Florida in 1763, they face the prospect of being put back in chains. So many of them joined Seminole bands that escaped into the thick forests and swamps of Florida. Now, sometimes those same Africans were re-enslaved by Seminoles, while others remained free. It really depended on the Seminole community that they joined. So Seminole slavery is is interesting and complicated. It's not at all like the trial shape, the chattel slavery that we're used to thinking of here in the United States. I mean, because they were subsistence farmers, a Seminole would have never needed like 100, 200 slaves to work a plantation. That just wasn't how they lived. Uh, they might have like one or two slaves, you know, that, to work like, you know, at their, you know, like local village, you know. And uh, there was a congressman who actually wrote about this. His name was, uh, his, it was in his 1858 book about the Seminoles, Congressman Joshua Gooding wrote on the subject. Uh, it's, he wrote, quote, They held their slaves in a state between servitude and freedom, the slave usually living with his own family, occupying his time as he pleased, paying his master annually a stipend of corn and vegetables. This class of slaves regarded servitude among the whites with the greatest degree of horror. Now, when I read that, it almost kind of reminds me of like a medieval serfdom, you know, like a peasant who would have lived in his own village and, you know, like paid a tax of, you know, to like, you know, his lord. But uh, I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of differences between those two. But that's just what I think of off the top of my head. So very fascinating. But uh, gradually, the blacks started assimilating a seminal culture. And by the time of the seminal wars, roughly 15% of seminal wars were black. So the Seminoles did occupy... Uh, you know, positions of authority as warriors uh, in Seminole tribes, the black, the African-Americans. And later on, we'll even see if there will be a couple uh, black chiefs in the Seminole uh, forces as well. So now we're going to go ahead and jump ahead to the American Revolution. So during the Revolutionary War, the British recruited the Seminole to attack American settlements in Georgia. So uh, like they did with a ton of other Indian tribes all across the country. Uh, they did this with Cherokee, the Iroquois, you know, so on and so forth with a lot of different Indian tribes. Uh, so this had the effect of giving the Americans a fierce hatred for the Seminoles. And at the end of the war, the treaty gave ownership of Florida back to the Spanish as well. So now uh, the, the Seminole are living back under Spanish authority and now they have a very uh, large, very hostile power uh, right to their north, who they've just engaged in a war with. It's not a great position to be in. So we're going to go ahead and talk about American ideals, uh, I'm sorry, ideas towards Florida and the Seminole. So at this point, the newly independent United States found itself in a quandary. I mean, what do you do with the Indian tribes that lay within or on their borders? So despite uh, the supposed sovereignty of the Indian tribes, settlers were streaming across the borders and settling in their lands, causing much conflict between the Indians and the American governments. So this is something that's going to be a pattern throughout this um, throughout this series, and it's also a pattern that you can pretty much associate with virtually any Indian war in American history. And it's that 
the uh, the federal governments, as well as state governments of the United States, as well as Indian tribes, cannot really control their people. So, like, you know, what happened is, you know, like, they would make a treaty and say, like, you know, okay, you know, the settlers cannot go past this line, and the Indians are going to leave the settlers alone. And the settlers say, fuck it, and decide to do it anyways. And then so they start settling across the line. And the Indians say, what the fuck? Like, you're not controlling your people. Like, you know, we're supposed to abide by this treaty. And then so a bunch of Indians get mad. They go massacre some settlers. Settlers get mad and the government gets mad and say, you're not abiding by the treaty. And then so, you know, the government sends in soldiers, they fight, and the cycle just repeats and repeats. And that's something we'll see through, like I said, it's something that is a constant throughout when you read about the history of American uh, Indian wars. So uh, at this time, though, Indians were originally dealt with by the War Department, which shows how the American government, uh, how many of the American government viewed them as hostile, right? The fact that they're being, it's not the you know, Secretary of Commerce or Secretary or like the Department of the Interior, which of course didn't exist yet, but it's the War Department. So it shows, shows immediately that the Americans are viewing them with hostility, right? They'd be dealt with by the War Department. So uh, this, the uh, co- cooperation between this, the Indians and the United States government was also complicated by the Manifest Destiny belief, which was held by many Americans, which of course dictated that white Americans were destined to conquer the land and expand across the continent to conform with God's will. So we have this preordained destiny that we're going to stream across the entire continent and the Indian way is the way of the past and we're going to occupy their land uh, because God wills it, essentially. You know, there's fault. So uh, the Indians, the settlers, uh, differed, also differed over their concepts of land ownership as well. So uh, for the Indians, if no one occupied a particular parcel, it was free to whoever could go ahead and occupy it and use it most efficiently. So, uh, so the Seminole basically believed that, you know, like they had gotten there because their, you know, the original land was empty, like, cause it had been depopulated by the Spanish. And then, so they said, okay, we're, we're here now. So we own it as long as we are like physically on the land. I mean, if we leave at some point and someone else occupies it, then it's their land basically. Now, uh, Americans though, believed in, of course, individual land ownership at the concept that everyone had to own every piece of land, basically. So if it wasn't owned by a person or a corporation, it was owned by the government, you know, therefore public land. So as I previously mentioned, the Seminoles believed that they were the rightful owners to their land in Florida because its original inhabitants were gone when they arrived. Now, from the American perspective, the Seminole illegally squatted on land that was owned by the Spanish. Uh, the Seminole also believed that Earth, like itself, was largely beyond ownership as well. So after the revolution, America wanted the land of Florida for several reasons. Uh, For one, they viewed it as an issue of national pride. It was kind of seen as, you know, evidence that they were kind of a weak power if they were going to just allow this, you know, bit of land right on their border to be occupied by European countries um, or by like a European country. Uh, moreover, they knew that the land of Florida was ripe for economic development in the form of farming with all of its arable land and navigable rivers. And also from a practical standpoint, owning Florida also helped with national security concerns as well. So of course we talked about how the British went ahead and supplied the Seminoles and armed them against the United States settlers uh, in Georgia. So the United States is viewing owning Florida as a way to make sure that doesn't happen again. So, now, this would lead to this, you know, this this uh, this goal to go ahead and own Florida would lead to the United States uh, in 1812, basically trying to fund its own astroturf insurrection by importing settlers from Georgia, calling them 
the Patriots. So they basically import a bunch of these like gorillas and they're from Georgia. And uh, these gorillas besiege a couple of Spanish forts. Uh, and now, interestingly enough, the Seminole actually are like, hey, you know, like, you know, we kind of hate the Spanish too. So the Spanish at first offered them aid to go, I'm sorry, not Spanish. The Seminole actually offered them aid to go against the Spanish. Uh, however, the Patriots went ahead and rejected the aid. So the Seminoles decided to throw in their lot with the Spanish instead and started ambushing the Patriot supply columns. So the Patriot War soon came to an end shortly thereafter. So congratulations, you played yourself, Patriots. This, of course, made the Americans hate the Seminole even more, and also ignited fears of a slave uprising as well, because the Patriots are looking at the Seminoles fighting, and they're like, hey, uh, there's a lot of black people <laughs> that, that, that are fighting with these Indians. Uh, this this might be a problem for our whole, uh, our whole slave economy. So just, just an idea. So this, of course, brings us to the War of 1812. So during the War of 1812, the British would occupy parts of Florida and distribute guns to the Seminole, largely like they did during the American Revolution, and fought several battles with the Americans around western Florida and Alabama. So at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814, Andrew Jackson destroyed an army of Creek Indians and swallowed a vast swath of their territory, setting his eyes on Seminole lands in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... This also brings us to the issue of the, uh, the quote, Negro Fort. So another object of American ire was the Negro Fort, a fort staffed by some 200 to 300 escaped slaves along the Apalachicola River in northern Florida. And as well, I'm, I'm just reading it as it is written in the book. This is not me like you know, saying a racial slur. That's just how it was written. So uh, the Spanish had tried to do something about the fort for a while, uh, but it didn't have the men or resources to destroy it. So Jackson, as head of the Southern Department of the, of the Army at this time, told the Spanish that if they didn't do something about the fort, he would. And the Spanish governor responded by saying that he had to wait for permission from Havana to go ahead and do anything. So Jackson went to work provoking a war. So one of the big generals uh, that we'll see throughout, this is his first introduction, we'll see him throughout the rest of the Seminole Wars, is a guy named General Edmund Pendleton Gaines. So Gaines went ahead and went about creating a plan for provoking a war. So he built a fort along the Flint River called Fort Scott, named after Winfield Scott. So the fort would have to draw supplies from New Orleans, which had to travel uh, there via the Apalachicola River, just right past the Negro Fort. So if the blacks attacked the supplies, uh, then that would, that would have given the United States the excuse it needed to just then destroy the fort. Uh, so meanwhile, Colonel Clinch, another guy working under Gaines, reported that Seminoles were preparing for war and started sending soldiers uh, down to the Florida-Georgia line. So on July 10th, 1816, a small fleet of supply ships anchored at the mouth of the Apalachicola River and waited for orders from Clinch. So these ships sent on a rowboat to gather fresh water, and it never returned. Later in the day, one dead sailor was found, and another was found stranded on a sandbar. He reported that two others had been killed, and a third had been taken prisoner by the Seminole. So in response, Clinch went ahead and marched with a force of about 300 soldiers, uh, uh, along with Allied Creek Indians, and surrounded the fort. So the Black Seminoles there had several cannons, uh, but they weren't trained in their use. So I should say these actually aren't necessarily Seminole affiliated. They're kind of just, you know, some of them were probably with the Seminoles and some of them weren't. I just want to go and make the correction. So uh, the blacks had several cannons, but they weren't trained in their use. So they largely didn't do any real damage against the U.S. ships. Now, once the U.S. Navy arrived, they started firing the fort from the river. So they would fire some, uh, few, like eight shots at the fort. Uh, now, the first eight wouldn't really do much damage. 
but the night shot found its mark and it hit the powder magazine for the fort, which of course caused the fort to explode dramatically. This explosion was so massive it could be heard 100 miles away all the way in Pensacola. So it completely leveled the fort. And it's also, it's worth noting as well that most of the fort's occupants were women and children as well, sadly. So out of 320 people in the fort, 250 were killed instantly, and the most uh, most of the rest later died of their wounds. Any surviving blacks were returned to slavery. So um, now we're going to go ahead and get into the buildup of the first Seminole War. So this didn't really have the effect exactly of mobilizing the Seminoles immediately. Uh, after the destruction of the Negro Fort, the fort, the frontier was quiet for a while. So most of the Seminoles moved further south. The United States started moving into the Alabama Territory as well. Uh, however, the peace would not last as the root causes of the conflict were still there. Uh, moreover, cattle theft between backwoods whites and Seminoles was a common occurrence, and it started to engender a bitter hatred between the whites and the Seminoles. And uh, like, like I mentioned before, it was hard for chiefs to control their warriors. So any 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 party that's preaching restraint, whether it be you know, like the chiefs or you know American officials, is generally going to be uh, ignored by lots of people on the frontier. So uh, just one example of this, in February 1817, a band of Seminole warriors attacked the Garrett family home in southwest Georgia, butchering Mrs. Garrett and her two children, one a toddler and one an infant. So this, of course, ignited frontiersmen who immediately started calling for revenge in response. Uh, the Spanish, uh, at, the, at the same time, also frustrated the Americans about being just generally difficult, just not cooperating with them, uh, and the British were also increasing their presence in Florida, he is selling guns through an agent named Alexander Arbuthnet. This is not the last time we will see him. So, now Jackson and Gaines just wanted to invade Florida and subdue the Seminoles, but President Monroe and Secretary of War John Quincy Adams preferred more delicate solutions. So, the Seminole leadership wanted to respond to these incursions uh, by the whites, but knew that if they did, it could lead to a devastating war. So, they largely kind of just didn't respond at first. So... Now, in order to send a message to Seminoles living in Florida, Gaines thought it would be a good idea to force out the Seminoles who were living in southwest Georgia, so he set his sights on the village of Fowleton near Fort Scott. This is a small you know, village on the border between Georgia and Florida. So the chief of Fowleton, a, uh, a you know chief named Niamathla, told the soldiers at Fort Scott that they were not allowed to cut timber on the east side of the Flint River. So Gaines was furious about this supposed disregard for U.S. authority, so he decided to teach him a lesson instead. So Gaines sent a force of 250 men across the river to capture Neomathla. On November 21st, 1817, there was a skirmish at Felton, but Gaines failed to capture Neomathla in the skirmish. Uh, the next day, Gaines ordered another attack on Felton, and this time, Felton's inhabitants were driven off. Uh, the Indian custom, of course, called for retaliation against his aggression, and so began the First Seminole War. So, uh, at the very beginning of the outbreak of the First Seminole War, Gaines was in a bad position in the war's beginning. Uh, supplies were running low, and a, a resupply convoy from the Gulf of Mexico had yet to arrive. So, Gaines decided to send Lieutenant R. Scott and 40 men upriver in a ship uh, to meet the convoy and guide them to Fort Scott. Now, when they found the convoy, they discovered 20 men uh, on the convoy who were extremely sick. So, then Scott decided it was best to head upriver to Fort Scott as soon as possible. 
So uh, the entire time as these men are traveling down the river, they're just extremely nervous traveling through Seminole territory. So they tried to stick to the center of the river as much as possible, but gradually the current kept pushing them to one side of the river, which meant, of course, they're more vulnerable to attack. So uh, at one point during the during their travels, when the boat came too close to wooden embankment, they expected happened, and a hail of rifle fire swept the deck. The Seminoles then came out and pulled the boat ashore, where they went to work with their tomahawks and knives, killing and scalping the crew. Out of 50 men on the ship, only six made it back to Fort Scott alive. Now, interestingly enough as well, shortly after this, uh, David Mitchell, who was the Indian agent for the Creek Nation for the former governor of Georgia, blamed the settlers for starting the war by stealing the Seminoles' cattle, which then caused the massacre of the Garrett family and set in motion the massacre on the river. So I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote from uh, David Mitchell here. So it is, quote, The peace of the frontier of Georgia has always been exposed and disturbed, more or less, by acts of violence, committed as well by the whites as the Indians. A spirit of retaliation has mutually prevailed. These petty acts of aggression were increased and multiplied by a set of lawless and abandoned characters who had taken refuge on both sides of St. Mary's River, living principally by plunder. I believe the first outrage committed on the frontier of Georgia after the Treaty of Fort Jackson was by these banditti, who plundered a party of Seminole Indians on the way to Georgia for the purpose of trade and killed one of them. This produced retaliation on the part of the Indians, and hence the killing of Mrs. Garrett and her child. End quote. So, I just think that was kind of an interesting quote, because it showed that, you know, some of the American agents were, you know, more or less understanding, I mean, of, of the situation, and kind of knew that there was definitely blood on, uh, on American hands as well. So now, upon hearing of the massacre of the Fort Scott party, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun gave Gaines orders to invade Florida and subdue the Seminoles. So the one stipulation was that he couldn't attack any Spanish installations. So Gaines, so what do you guys think Jackson is going to do, right? He's, he's told us the one thing he can't do is attack any Spanish installations. I wonder what he's going to do. So at this time, Gaines was actually busy subduing a nest of pirates on the East Coast, so Calhoun sent Jackson instead, So, which I'm sure he would definitely not regret at any point. So uh, Jackson wrote a confidential letter to him in a row, stating that if the president desired it, he could conquer Florida in 60 days. So uh, so, is, um, so Monroe never responded to this, mostly because uh, he himself, of course, didn't want to go ahead and conquer Florida, he also knew there would be some people in the United States who would be into that shit. So he knew it would just be safer politically to just say nothing. So he never responded. So Jackson arrived at Fort Scott uh, in March with a force of 500 regulars, 1,000 Tennessee volunteers, and Georgia militia, and about 1,400 Lower Creek uh, Allied warriors. So Jackson's army moved down the uh, Apalachicola in search of food just as much as they were Seminoles. So recent hostilities had made it so that Fort Scott had precious few supplies, so they almost immediately needed food for the army or they were going to starve. So, which is just a great way to start an expedition. It's just you immediately like, fuck, guys, it's, it's two days in and we already are about to run out of food. That's just, that's how you know it's going to be a great expedition. So, uh, so luckily though for them, two days after they entered Florida, they met their supply boats and ate their fill. So Jackson ordered his men to build a new fort for resupply on the ruins of the old uh, Negro fort. Uh, they named this fort Fort. Uh, they named this fort Fort Jackson, Gadsden, not Jackson. All right. So 
Uh, Jackson headed northeast towards the Seminole towns near Lake Mikosuke. They burned a deserted Seminole town at Tallahassee and attacked a large group of Seminoles at Mikosuke. So now Jackson could have actually captured the entire group of them, but the white soldiers accidentally fired on his Creek allies because racism, thinking they were Seminoles, and the Seminoles escaped. So after the Seminoles were gone, Jackson burned 300 homes and took their food stores. Uh, then Jackson went down to the Spanish fort of St. Mark's, and he was at first greeted cordially by his commander, who offered food and medical care to the Americans. Now, despite this, Jackson immediately called for the fort's surrender, because he's a dick. Uh, the Spanish commander refused, but the Americans rushed to him before he could mount a defense, capturing it along with the that agent we talked about earlier, Alexander Arbuthnot, who, if you'll remember, was selling guns to the Seminoles. So now, when at the fort, uh, Jackson hanged two Indian chiefs uh, named Josiah Francis and Homethel Miko, uh, who had been previously captured by an American ship, who were luring them out by flying the Union Jack as well. So they pretended to be a British ship, and they came out probably expecting, you know, like guns or gifts, and they were captured by the Americans. So after shipping off the uh, Spanish fort's garrison, Jackson's army moved south, uh, engaging a village of Red Sticks, which the Red Sticks were a group of, uh, mentioned earlier, so the Red Sticks were a group of Indian tribesmen that Jackson had previously fought during the Creek War. Uh, so he engaged a group of Red Sticks, uh, killing 40 warriors along with 100 women and children. Uh, they also found Elizabeth Stewart, who, interestingly enough, was the lone female survivor of the Scott Massacre. So she was completely unharmed, and she had absolutely no idea why she was spared from death. So after this, uh, Jackson's army rushed ahead, hoping to surprise the Seminole villages along the Suwannee River. He also wanted to capture and re-enslave the Black Seminoles as well. Now, uh, at this time, all they found, though, was deserted villages. Uh, so a small force of Black warriors skirmished with them, giving the women and children time to escape. So after the Black warriors withdrew, Jackson's army spent the next two days burning and looting the Seminole villages. So uh, Jackson also captured a man at this time named Robert Amberster, was pretending to be a British agent. So he basically uh, had told the Seminole that he had represented British Alliance, but that was completely bullshit. He completely made it up. Uh, in reality, he was working for a man named George Woodbine, who was trying to build an independent empire in Florida, defended by Seminoles and escaped slaves. So this is this is just how wild the antebellum period you know was. Between like the War of 1812 and the Civil War, you just have all these different guys you know, like, trying to kind of, like, go out on the frontier and make their own little empires, you know, like, you've got, like, the filibusters and everything, like, you know, like, Walker, like, going going down in, like, Central America and, like, trying to build his own empire, and, like, William Walker. It's, um, it's just, it's, it's really fucking wild. But, uh, so, uh, now both Amberster and Arbuthnot were sentenced to death for inciting the Seminoles. So, Amberster was shot via firing squad, and Arbuthnot was hanged from a ship's yard arm. So, with the two major Seminole towns destroyed and its inhabitants now refugees, Jackson declared the war won and sent his Tennessee and Georgia volunteers home and started marching back towards St. Mark's. So, after arriving at St. Mark's, however, Jackson received news the Seminoles were gathering and being supplied by the Spanish. Sure doesn't sound like the wars the war's quite over yet, Jackson. Uh, so, he decided to take his remaining men and march on the city of Pensacola. So, now on May 23rd, Jackson took Pensacola without firing a shop and set up a uh, shot and set up shop outside of Fort Barangas. So opposing him was Governor Massat and 175 men against Jackson's 1,000 men. So Jackson demanded Massat surrender and Massat refused. 
Quoting President Monroe's address to Congress to say Jackson's only purpose was to deal with the Seminole and not the Spanish. Which I gotta admit is pretty funny. Like, he's directly quoting, like, your boss. Like, he's saying, hey, like, your own boss told you to leave me the fuck alone, dude. Like, can you just, can you fucking not, man? So, uh, the siege began. Now, even though Jackson's men heavily outnumbered Massets, the fort would still be difficult to take. So, as Jackson's artillerymen were, were placing their guns, uh, Massett opened fire. Uh, Massett then opened up negotiations again, and Jackson offered up the same acceptable terms. Massett once again refused and resumed firing on the Americans. Now, uh, at night, the Americans moved their cannons to get better positions at the fort. And uh, when, you know, a day broke, Massett saw this, and he offered up terms that would be acceptable to Jackson. So Massett agreed to put up a token defense so that he could surrender his honor, so, or surrender with honor. So basically kind of like, you know, like, few men fire here and there, and then like, okay, all right, I put up a fight, you got me. It, it's basically just a way to say, like, he didn't completely give up without a fight, even though in reality he, he virtually did. So this is actually the end of the First Seminole War. So you'll notice that the First Seminole War is just a lot of Jackson just burning down unoccupied Seminole villages. I mean, there's like a few skirmishes here and there. But for the most part, he's just kind of just, you know, like not really engaging anybody except for the Spanish, who he originally was not supposed to engage at all. And the war even ended with him engaging the Spanish. Uh, kind of thought the whole purpose was to uh, engage with the Seminole. But uh, what do I know? So it's interesting how interesting how that uh, works out sometimes in war. But uh, so uh, if you like this, uh, go ahead and tune in for the next episode. We're going to talk more about the Seminole Wars. This is a very, uh, I'm very excited for this series. It was a lot of fun to read and write about. Uh, if you like the podcast, go ahead and look us up on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, uh, iHeartRadio, a bunch of the other different uh, podcast apps wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, if you want to go ahead and join the Patreon, uh, if you're only $3 a month, you can go ahead and get access to bonus episodes. I just uploaded one on Jack Henson, who is a Civil War sniper. So uh, I was really excited for that series as well. And a lot, it's been a lot of fun. So uh, until then, uh, I will see you guys next week. Take it easy.